I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 294. And today on the show, I'm joined by freelance writer and whitetail hunter, Pat Durkin, to get back to the basics of whitetail deer and how they see, hear, smell, and survive. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today in the show, I'm joined by Pat Durkin, who is an outdoor writer and avid deer hunter. And I want to have him on the show to discuss deer themselves, not just, you know, all the fancy strategies to chase them and the gear to help us kill them, but actually just talk about these animals and how they do what they do. And I thought Pat would be the perfect guy to do this because he's an actual journalist. He doesn't just whip up an article based off of his own crazy ideas like I do sometimes. He actually meticulously researches his topics and he consults multiple experts and then reports back on what the science says or what the real data says. And with that has come a fascinating insight into what makes white-tailed deer tick. So that's what we're chatting with Pat about today. All that he's learned over the years about deer as he's researched and study these creatures, stuff like how they see, and how they smell, and how they hear, and lots, lots more. So, with no introduction today, we're just going to get right into it. So let's take a quick break to thank a couple partners, and then we will get chatting with Pat. All right, I'm excited to have on the line with me today, Pat Durkin. Welcome to the show, Pat. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It's been uh, fun over the last, I don't know, year or two to get to chat every once in a while as you're working on different articles and things and with your involvement with Mediator now. But um, this will be our first chance to do an extended, long conversation. So thank you for doing this. Well, you bet. Well, I was looking forward to it for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, me too. And I, and I guess what brought you to mind for me as someone who I thought we should have a chat with is that so often when you look out there in today's hunting media or even listen to podcasts or even sometimes this podcast, we get so hyper excited about the latest and greatest strategy, some new trick, some new trend, whatever it might be. 
Um, but when I go and I look at so many of your recent things that you're writing and focusing on now, you do a great job of bringing things back to what really matters the most, which is the animal itself and research about the animal. And I don't know, you just have this extremely deep well of information and experience with deer, given your background. And then you do such an interesting mm-hmm. job of talking to other people that research deer that you just get these perspectives that I think are really, really helpful. Um, so I kind of want to talk about a lot of things related to that. But before we get into deer, I do want to make sure we lay a little bit of groundwork for people who maybe aren't familiar with you, um, which is which would be mm-hmm. shocking if they're not. But if they are new to Pat Durkin, can you give us the cliff notes on kind of how you got to this point, what you've done in the deer world and what you're doing now? Yeah, the the thing I'd say too is I've never um I've never hurt or um whatever insults of people haven't heard of me because the one thing I've I've always known about writing um reporting is that most people don't read bylines and this goes back to my days I started at I started at the Oshkosh Northwestern newspaper in East Central Wisconsin back in 1982 when I was still um in college and I always remember the first thing I wrote for the college newspaper back then um, was a column about, um, I think it was about hunting or fishing. I can't even remember anymore. But anyway, I, the thing I remember about Mark is that when I went to, I was all proud and happy about getting my first piece of um, um, writing published. But then I went to, um, when I went to, back to the newspaper office that next day, I remember seeing somebody had used the newspaper um, as a door jam to keep the door from from locking behind them, <laughs> and, and it was just just coincidentally they punched, you know, the little uh, door um, knob part sticks in, you know, the, the little clasp sticks into the door. Right at that point is where my face was. <laughs> it was punched right through, and I always kept that in mind that um, people have many uses for newspapers. Yeah, <laughs> and you're you're quickly forgotten and you're often overlooked. You know, so. I'm not, I'm not heard at all when people say, I never heard of you until this or that, you know, and even today I I write a lot of stuff and they'll, um, they'll, they'll I've had people quite often tell me, I was reading this article the other day and they start describing the article and I'll say, yeah, I wrote that. (laughs) 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 And it's happened so often in my career where you just cannot have a, um, it it keeps you humble. It keeps, you know, I, I realize there's many people out there who have much higher profiles than I do, and I, I just don't worry about it too much. But um, to, to finish my little bio real quickly, I, I worked in the Oshkosh newspaper for eight years, and, and I was mainly uh, um, I did all sorts of jobs. I covered school boards, I covered um, high school sports, and and my whole um, thing though was that I always wanted to get into the outdoors beat. So the reason I was in sports for for the first couple of years is because. Sports editors in those days always controlled the outdoors page. And most newspapers, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, had at least an outdoor page once a week. And I always realized that, um, well, if I want to get on that page and write for, write for that um, paper, I need to learn learn the sports editor's name and work with him. So that's kind of how I got going on. And then eventually I, I did other things in the newspaper. I, I was always doing the outdoors, but I also did things like on the school board, I also covered city hall a little bit and you know, police and um, uh, fire type of things. You go out and have to cover you know, spot news. So it was really a good background for reporting. And then um, along the way, one of my um, little breakthroughs, I guess, was I learned 
that one of the best sources for conservation information in our, in our region was a guy named Al Holfacker. And Al um, was the editor of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, that the original one of the original founders of it. He and Jack Brower founded the magazine back in the late 70s, and it was just up the road in Appleton, Wisconsin. And by, by the time I came around as a newspaper, these guys had Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine rolling as a national magazine. And so I would interview Al on various conservation issues going on in the area because he was always a real good citizen, always involved in things. And eventually, they must have been reading my stuff and how I covered um, the issues that, that Al was involved in because they um, they brought me up one time for an interview in about ni- late, late 1990, and then I started working for them um, two or three weeks later. And that you know got me into the, into the hunting industry, basically. And so I worked at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine for 11 years. I was, I was its editor for most of that time. And along the way, you know, one, one great, you know, I, one thing I didn't know at the time, Mark, which I always look back on with a lot of fascination, was that um, I didn't realize it, but each time I was taking these jobs, first at newspapers, then at magazines, I was kind of writing the, the tail end of a, of a big deal. Newspapers were still you know, really strong going into the 80s, and by the end of the 80s, they were starting to tail off. And the magazines um, were kind of doing the same thing during the 90s. You know, we were our magazine circulation peaked in about 1989, 1990. And by the time I left in 2001, it was, it was, it'd been on a steady downhill climb, no matter how hard I worked, no matter how much effort I put into it, things were uh, sliding. And by the time I left in 2001, you know, the internet was starting to come along and people were spending more time um, doing online stuff. And even things as basic as email newsletters were getting, were getting a little popularity. So, all, all on the way, I I, um, I was kind of, without realizing it, jumping one ahead, one step ahead of the um, the downward curve. <laughs> so by the time I got in the freelancing, you know, like about twenty years ago, I was um, I was pretty well situated to to do freelance work. I, I had a lot of contacts. I knew people in the academic world that were doing a lot of deer research, and so that that really served me well when I started freelancing. And that's what I've been doing now for. Um, since since 2001, late 2001, and I, so I do a lot of work with the Archery Trade Association. Still, I'm kind of their chief chief copy editor, and I still write my weekly newspaper column. And I've been writing for Meat Eater now the last year and a half, and I write regular articles for um, American Hunter Magazine, and so I, I I stay really busy. So you've been writing about or reporting on deer and hunting related topics for what would you say 30 years more than that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been, I think one of my first articles in the outdoors is a fishing article on, on some local tournament guy, and then after that, um, one thing, I, one thing I always, I always look back on with a lot of pride is that even though I was uh, an outdoor reporter and doing things from everything from fishing reports to you know weekly fishing reports to um, or just covering conservation meetings, the thing that I always took time for, I'd take vacation for every year was deer hunting up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is nice. only about a, a three and a half hour drive from, from where I've lived, you know, in central Wisconsin now for you know, many years. And so that was a big part of my, um, oh, when I took vacation during my, um, um, newspaper days, I almost always spent at least a week up in, up in the UP, um, gun during the gun season, which always opens November, November 15th. And so that was really a, a, a cool thing to do just, and it kind of got me, um, 
interested in something that one one thing I I should say, Mark, is one thing that always fascinates me about about deer hunting was always the people side of it. I always loved um, yeah. things like the deer camp stories, the um, things that kind of brought people together and, and got them hunting. And I, I always I always enjoyed reading about the, the long time ago deer hunters and um, the most influential book for me growing up is a, you know when I first started hunting I was about fourteen. Um, I, I always remember reading Larry Kohler's book, Shots at Whitetails, and it's been a book I've kept in my library ever since. And, um, you know, it's just, to me, it's fun to kind of go back and read every now and then because, you know, it wasn't, um, they weren't doing things like hunting scrapes. They weren't worrying about rub lines, all these things that um, we've kind of um, taken, into, taken into a big part of our strategy sessions. They did drives, and they did um, still hunting and stand hunting that was about it you know and so that that's kind of my history i just um i love all that all that um it gets the 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 research is called human dimensions yeah that is fascinating stuff on the on the on the uh, topic of books are there any other of those classic books that you still point to as something you recommend to folks or that you like to grab off your shelf every once in a while and look at um, I remember finding, uh, I was up at my family deer camp this, uh, I guess it would have been earlier this spring, and at the bottom of a stack underneath the table was one of the um, one of the original books from the, I never know if it's Benoit or Benoit brothers, uh, but I think it was How to oh, Bag a Trophy Buck, yeah, the Benoits. Yeah, and, sure. Um, it was yeah. it was really old and falling apart, but I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. This is like 30 years old, and this is what my grandpa was reading when I was a baby. Um, yeah, that was kind of neat to see. Are there any books yeah. like that that you still look at? And yeah, that, point well, that, that one. Yeah, that one there is really a classic. You know, Larry Benoit's book. Um, I, I still have my copy from, I think it was part of the Outdoor Life Book Club back in the seventies. Yeah, probably like mid seventies, late seventies. And one of the one of the cool things about working at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine during the nineties was um, they had a book division. At the, at the publishing house that um, then owned Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. So I was able to bring back and kind of update a little bit, um, like Shots at Whitetails. We did our own um, edition of Shots at Whitetails. And, and I, we also um, we tried to get permission from, the, from Larry Benoit to um, redo his, his original book, um, you know, the, the, How to Get the Biggest Buck of Your Life, or that whatever was it. it was called. That's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, How to Bag the Biggest Buck of Your Life, I think, was the title. Yeah. And it was just a real straightforward um, book about his his still hunting and how this family would you know go out and you know, get on a track and basically um, stalk you know deer based on um, what they saw the foot the hoof, footprint. And it was one of those unfortunate things where um, you know we we wanted to reprint the book, but then there was just too much um, too many obli- too many obligations and too many um, oh, past differences between Larry and, and the co-author at the time. And we just couldn't make it work. But then we um, came up with an alternative where a writer named Bryce Towsley spent some time with um, Larry and his family, and did I think I think they did one or two two more books I think with the Benoits and during the 1990s, early 2000s. So, in fact, I, I um, during that process I, I sent my copy of the original Benoit book to Larry and asked him to sign it for me, and and it was it, uh, it's kind of a curious thing. He wrote back to me, sent the book back, had a nice little um, wrote, wrote a nice little um, tribute to me, and then uh, <laughs> and then he said something like, "I'm sorry you couldn't take time to um, stop by and visit when you're in Vermont last week." 
or that last summer. And I don't know who he confused me with, but I've, I've never been to Vermont in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's one of those fun things you, 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 you know, that happened to you once in a while where someone, uh, for whatever reason, confuses you with someone else. And so I have that inscription on my Larry Benoit book. That's great. <laughs> uh, so speaking of then these, these classic books, these classic uh, resources that so many people looked on, um, I do feel like you have now gotten your own fingerprints on many of the resources and, and things that people are now looking back on um, that aren't that old at all or even new now that, to get this new foundation. With people today, I think new hunters that are trying to learn about deer and deer hunting, if they're turning a meteor right now, for example, or many other places that your Definitely. written works are at, um, you know, they're yeah. seeing some really good foundational deer-related content that I've really loved from you. You've done a a handful well, of pieces now. Yeah, of course. You've done a handful of pieces now kind of examining whitetail 101 kind of biology, some about the senses mm-hmm. of deer. And I want to kind of start right. there because we very sure. rarely ever talk about that anymore. It's always like how to find the best pinch point or how can you track, you know, trail camera data and find patterns and so on and so forth. We never rewind back to the yeah. beginning and start talking about like, what can these deer smell? What can they see? What should mm-hmm. we be thinking about? Um, so that's kind of where I wanted to start, Pat. Let's talk about okay. a deer's senses. You asked me this question a couple months ago, and I want to get right back to you, which is how would you rank a deer's senses from most important or most um, beneficial to them down to the bottom? Well, I, I should say, um, and I mean this real sincerely, Mark, is the one thing I, I've liked about um, my career, the things that, that I find interesting is that I've, one thing I've learned along the way, and I fairly learned it fairly quickly was that I might, I love deer hunting and I love fishing, but, but I've realized quickly that, um, there's some guys out there who I always refer to them as the Brett Favre's and, and Michael Jordan's of deer hunting and the guys who really are good at it. I mean, they might not be able to tell you what tree, what kind of tree species their, their stand is located in. Damn, they know how to hunt. They 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 just they're I would say they're predators. They're they're guys that really lock on to stuff and they sense stuff and they can't even put it in the words sometimes. I mean, I've seen many examples of that. You ask them questions about um, you know, what are you seeing here? What are you looking at here? What 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 made you sit in that tree? And they struggle to explain it. It's it's really interesting. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is I I've always I've never considered myself the expert. I always consider myself the guy who can talk to experts and, and um, kind of interpret stuff and read research. I mean, I, I've always liked, and this is, I think, an odd thing, I've always liked sitting in, in conferences where these um, graduate students and, and um, deer researchers present their findings and then interviewing them afterward and asking them questions about things I didn't understand because it, it, I just find it interesting what, the things they can... Um, they can learn about whitetails, uh, you know, scientifically, but then also realize there's some things about deer that we'll never fully understand because uh, the thing I talk about in, I think, a couple of these different articles I wrote for Meat Eater is that, like, when it comes to the, the, um, the sense, one of the reasons I call you is because I, I really, I really, over time, realized that uh, Mark Kenyon is a real nice, real nice, hard, hard and co- hardcore practical way of deer hunting where he doesn't read too much into things that he can't really nail down but boy he he's he's um he knows he knows the strengths the weaknesses 
and how to apply them. And I always find that's really important. The, the best deer hunters typically know how to um, put stuff, you know, in, in the use out there in the woods. So, but to answer your question, I've been um, stumbling around here with that. But to answer your question, I, I um, one of the reasons I called you on that recent one, one about um, interpreting, you know, what what deer what deer can smell and how, how well they hear, how well they, they um, see. I, I ask you these kind of questions. I, I like to hear what you think. And the, the one, we talked just recently about um, how well do deer hear and where do you rank that? And when you said that you rank, you know, they're able, their ability to smell is number one. I thought, yeah, I, I, I can buy that. I, I, I've seen it too many times where deer can just pick off a little bit of scent when you when you think how the heck could they have smelled that and even hear, hear hunters talk about, well, do they have a sixth sense because there's no way they could have smelled me. And the thing that I find fascinating about, there's no way when people say there's no way they could have done this or that. I think you're really not, not really taking account the many things that can go awry in the deer woods, you know, the way that a, a scent can swirl around and move in a direction that you don't, don't expect you know, just because the wind's blowing in your face at the at the in the tree stand you're in doesn't mean that 30 yards down the hill it's, it's catching a little eddy and swirling back up in a way that they can pick up just a little bit of a scent off off you and 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 actually um may not be able to pinpoint you but get pretty close to knowing whatever it was this isn't good and they, they start getting they start getting spooky so anyway i i, I agree with you. when you when you i don't sit there and, and, and try i think you probably figured out from my interviews i don't try to steer you into what i think i, I want to hear what you think and so when you said that i thought yeah that's kind of the way i think too that you know number one is uh the scent and and then from there i i look at you made the third point that i just loved was that and from there if they see something or they hear something the first thing they're going to try to do is verify it with their nose if they can do it they're going to verify it with their nose and I, I thought, yeah, I've seen that too many times to, to not agree with that. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, I guess we and I agree on that um, pretty wholeheartedly that it's uh, number one. And then the, the probably I'd say um, I couldn't tell you for certain if it was sight or, or hearing because I've been busted so many times by both. Yeah. And but the the one that one that that um I I am just fascinated by how um with the hearing, the way that the, I, I've always loved watching deer's ears, the way they, they turn. And I remember that's probably the first thing when I saw a deer at close range when I was like maybe 15, 16 years old, hunting from a tree for the first time and looking down on that deer and watching it approach. That's one thing I noticed was those ears were just constantly moving, constantly checking things out. So I guess I, I kind of leaned toward the ears as being um, number two, but I, then again, I, they're so good at detecting movement that I, I don't um, I don't discount that either. Yeah, yeah, they certainly have got a heck of a package of tools to survive between those three senses. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. let's uh, let's focus on sm- on smelling first on their sense of okay. scent. Um, I, I know you've done a lot of research, not necessarily research, but read about a lot of research and also been out there in the field and seen a lot of things that um, I'm sure have indicated the, to you that they have an incredible sense of smell. Um, but does anything stand mm-hmm. out as you've talked to different experts about their sense of smell or different researchers? Anything that stands out to you that helps kind of communicate just how 
unique their sense of smell is or how they smell. I mean, it's one thing to say they can smell really good. It's another thing mm-hmm. to quantify yeah. that in some way or to help yeah. us try to understand that. What stood out to you um, when you've examined that? Yeah, the guy I almost always interview at some point on these kind of topic, topics is uh, Grant Woods down at down Missouri. Yeah, I know you've had Grant on your on your podcast. Mm-hmm. And w- one thing I've um, I really value greatly is is my own credibility. I mean, I I, I don't go off and I really make an effort to quote people um, accurately. And I take and if I screw up, I admit it. And I find a way to um, correct that. But one of the guys I've always respected because he's just a real, again, a down-to-earth guy who understands this stuff and reads more about it. And, co- and that, you know, Grant not only comprehends it better, he, um, he, he remembers the details. I tend to forget all, all the little finer, finer details, but Grant doesn't. But Grant made a great comment to me for this recent Mediator article where he, he said um, something to the effect that deer can specify the age, the amount, and the origins of each each meat, vegetable, seasoning. If you get a casserole dish, he made this great point where he said, you have a casserole dish cooking up there in your kitchen, and you can, you'll can you take a whiff and go, hmm, my, my mom's making casserole or my wife's making casserole, whereas a deer can get that same whiff and basically specify how much meat's in there, where it came from, what animal it grew, maybe even the age of that meat, um, it came out that out that animal. The seasonings in the dish, and they can gauge things like the probably even that the temperature of that stuff as it's, as it's cooking in there, and how it's distributed, and whereabouts exactly in in the house it's coming from without ever having stepped foot in there. And so I think they just have that, and I, I don't think Grant's exaggerating. I think they really have. When you look at how many um, well, scent receptors they likely have in their nose. And all these factors that go into it. That one thing I, I, I loved about um, this piece on, on, on for Meat Eater, when I got writing about this, was it's it's cool to me to think that we have really nailed down things like um, the dogs. You know, and dogs dogs have so much practical application for humans. We use, we use dogs in so many different ways that there's been lots of research into what deer, what what dogs can smell, how many scent receptors they have in their nose. And then, um, but then we don't really have that for deer because, well, deer, as much as we enjoy hunting them, they don't have the practical application in the field. You know, it's police work, um, tracking down um, suspects, whatever it might be, that dogs do. So, you know, like, so you look at a human nose, and they they, they figure that um, the human nose has anywhere from 10 to 50 million scent receptors in there. That you know, each scent receptor is kind of a specialized little unit that can detect you know, different scents, just, just one specific sense. And, but we have so many of them, it gets this whole um, array of, of scents that we can kind of distinguish. And most of us can point to someone in our life that can smell better than we can. Like in my case, I always look at my wife, and I, my wife can, can pick out odors and, and scents and, and tell you what, what vegetable it is and those kind of things. And I, always, I always struggle with that. But, you know, so we have, if you figure if the human has 50 million scent receptors, and you look at a bloodhound, and the bloodhound, they have like um, some estimates up to four billion scent receptors in their nose. So when they get, when you put a bloodhound on a human track, they fig- they figure out real quickly you know the direction of travel, um, how and basically um, you know which comes into play when someone tries to double back on a bloodhound 
the bloodhound instantly figures out which scent, um, which part of that foot track is, um, which footprint was made most recently. They can tell that just by smelling it, which is the most, which is the hottest scent. So th- that's, um, I guess, where I, I, I just love that kind of stuff. I love reading about and interviewing people who have done these tests and figure out um, how, they, how these dogs are able to smell so well. Then Grant, going back to Grant Woods again, so I asked Grant, well, what do you think can smell better? We don't have that kind of pinpointed information on, on a deer scent receptor. You haven't mapped out the deer's nose to know what part of that nose is smelling this, what part of the nose is smelling that. And Grant made this great point. He said, you know, if deer can't smell better, can't detect scents better than a, than a dog, how would they have survived all these eons in, in a world where they're being hunted by coyotes um, and, and wolves? You know, they must be able to smell better than those creatures if they're able to evade them for this long and actually, um, you know, survive despite heavy predation in some cases. Interesting point. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Given that, given that, and, and we we know this, um, oh, what's the right way to describe it? We, we know this intellectually as humans. We know they have this tremendous level of, of scenting ability, but then oftentimes we still try to fight it. We still try to find mm-hmm. ways yeah. to defeat a whitetail's nose. And you kind of have mm-hmm. two schools of thought these days. There's... One school of thought that says do everything you possibly can, and and this is kind of what I typically err towards. You know, spray your stuff mm-hmm. down, do the scent free shower, store it outside, try ozone, try this thing that. I try it all. At least you can maybe help yourself a little bit. And then the other school mm-hmm. of thought is you're never going to hundred percent beat a deer's nose. Why even bother? Just focus on playing the wind right, and then it doesn't matter. Um, 
What do you think? Where do you fall on that, Pat? Or where does your research point you towards when you talk to all these different mm-hmm. people? Can you defeat it in any way? Is it even worth trying? The, the, the point the point I make, and I, I, I do believe this, um, is that you can you can knock down your scent enough to where you confuse them, where, where you make them think you're farther away than you actually are. And I, and I remember um, being able to pick up on that with my own two eyes, so to speak, back in uh, probably like the mid mid to late nineties. And, and, and um, this is back when, yeah, I remember Mark, this shows you, oh, I'm really aging myself here, but, but one of my <laughs> first trade shows I attended was um, probably about 1991 or 1992 when scent locks first came out. And Greg Sussman was, um, Greg Sussman, the guy who founded the scent lock company he had, like a little 10 by 10 booth at um, what was then the bow hunting trade show. And he was doing this this um, test to kind of show people the technology he was using where he put different scents in a jar and then covered the jar, jar jars with um, his scent fabric, which in those days, it's kind of, it's fun to look back on that stuff. And I wish I would have kept Mark, I mean, um, <laughs> his Greg's original stuff because they looked look like basically dark pajamas. It was something like the, <laughs> the, the um, Oh, like, you know, just something like the ninjas would have worn, maybe, you know. <laughs> so, so this is stuff you'd, you'd, you put these, uh, the, these, these, um, these, the scent lock, uh, fabric pajamas on and then put your hunting clothes over top of them. And one thing that I, I remember a couple of different times, I'd be sitting on, a, on an edge of a field up in a tree and you watch a deer way off in the distance. Often pick up his nose or downwind of you, they pick up their nose. And they just start waving that nose back and forth in the air, like they're like you could tell they're confused. Like we're, and they can de- they can detect something, but it, they're not alarmed. And I've, I saw a couple of different times where doves and, and young bucks would work their way across that field, with their nose in the air, sniffing and sniffing and sniffing and sniffing, trying to figure out where that smell is coming from. They knew they knew it was was danger, but they weren't scared. They were more like curious, knowing they're getting. Like they they thought you're off in the distance, you know, farther than you really were, and I'd eventually they, they'd get within um, 200 yards, 150 yards before they'd start getting a little little more antsy. We're just going to think, huh, this might not be good. But I thought, you know, God, I, in the past though, you'd see that kind of behavior, and they they just get that smell smell get that scent and be gone. So I thought, you can't tell me it has no impact. Now, can you make it where you're invisible? No, that's again where I. I'm now um, in the modern era, quote guys like Mark Kenyon, because I think it was one of your great quotes in that article is that, you know, you just want to kind of make it to where you can't can't decide for sure what it is that's that's um, providing that, that extra little little um, de- um, suppressing um, effort. But there's but you can't pinpoint it. But you know you know if you do enough of these things, the shotgun approach, as you described it. I think I, I buy that. I, I've seen enough of it where I don't, I really get kind of testy when guys say, oh, that stuff's baloney, that doesn't work. I think, no, there's there's enough good science in there that's been tested by at, at universities like Rutgers and elsewhere where the scent lock stuff, it does trap scent. It does hold scent, and you can reactivate the stuff to a point where it absorbs more scent. And so you can you can make a difference there. So I won't, I won't discount that. Where where I think most hunters fail, and I'm, a, I'm a, I put myself in this category, it takes real concerted, consistent effort to knock down that stunt all the time. 
and whitetail hunters can do it because you know we can we can kind of pick and choose where we're going to hunt. We can kind of plan each um, stand time. Each time we sit in the stand, we can kind of plan for it and work around. Where it gets tougher to do, I think, in western environments where you're you're moving constantly, you're you're um, you're spotting a stalk and you're glassing all these kind of things. You're building up a sweat. It's much harder to control those in that setting than than it is in a in a typical bow hunters in in, in whitetail country. Yeah. So to me, though, all those kind of things factor into this. So I, I never, I I don't, um, I still try to spray down. You know, I use the scent scent killing sprays and that kind of thing because I I figure, what's the harm? At least you, you right. know it doesn't hurt anything to try it. And 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 I and I have seen these these nice little tests that we do. But the human knows where you really, you know, people do have a harder time detecting things that have been sprayed down. And I figure, well, you know, you're playing, you're basically playing percentages. You know, if you're going to, if, if you could have a choice between a, um, a 2% effectiveness and zero effectiveness, well, of course, you know, try the 2% or 3%. And, and if, any little edge at the right time in the right place and time might just be enough to make it work. So yeah. why would you discount that? Exactly. Definitely agree with that. Now, what about the latest trend in the scent control world, which is ozone, right? There was the Ozonics, huh. and then there was yeah. Scent Crusher, and then there's all these other companies coming out with different ozone devices and stuff. Have you been able to talk mm-hmm. to any researchers or see any science that backs that up? Um, anything in your research that points to how effective that is to any degree? Um, not really. Uh, you know, there where you get, as you can figure out, anyone can figure out real quickly, is that it's hard to prove the effectiveness of this kind of stuff out in the field. And so, like to me, I I, I look at the ozone idea and that this um these different different devices that um you know um base like ozonics, I think it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I guess the thing that convinces me, Mark, is when you can do a good practical example of how that stuff, how that stuff came to be. And I think the story they use, and it makes sense to me is it was developed apparently by a guy who was, um, was he like a veterinarian or, or working on, or doing necropsies on, on dead animals and used this ozone to, to make it, um, so it wasn't quite so stinky over the operating table or over the examining table. And by blowing this ozone across the, the table and killing that scent or, or whatever it does, destroying that scent, you know, you think, well, you know, I can see where if you could put, put a device like that position over your, over your head. So that as it blows off from the tree stand, it's um, disrupting your, your, um, your scent distribution. And, and, and I guess the way I look at it is um, during my Navy days, I remember taking all these false firefighting classes and they always talked about this foam they use in firefighting doesn't really put the fo- put the fire out, but it, it keeps the oxygen from reaching the flames. So then it effectively it smothers it. It, it, it cuts it off. I think, well, if you can do that in a, in a scent stream with ozone, it makes sense. And, but as far as, you know, when you try to prove this stuff, that's where it gets tricky. Cause you know, there's so many different factors that come into this. Um, you know, you, if you don't point that thing downwind correctly, or, or, if, or if your scent goes off of a different direction than the ozone's blowing out, and then, then they so there's always little things that are very hard to prove um, scientifically and and consistently. And there's so many little factors that that come into that um, testing process that disrupt things enough to where you can't get always the firm conclusions that we'd all like to have. 
Yeah, so true. But like you said, it does seem like it's another one of those things that that intuitively, or at least when you're out there experientially, it does seem to help to some degree. At least, at least I've seen it. Um, yeah, it yeah. seems to help. But like you said, there's a whole lot of what ifs and buts, and you know, mm-hmm. a lot of ways it could go wrong too. But yeah, yeah I think well, that, that, that's where I, 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 um, again, as a reporter coming out from a reporter's point of view, that's why I think it's important for me to talk to people like you. Um, I, I ask guys like Greg Miller what he's what he's come across. Greg's always been a pretty good straight shooter. I've known him for about thirty years. Um, Grant Woods. I've, I talk to different people, and they don't always want to be quoted on on various stuff because of various um, you know requirements they have with sponsors or whatever it might be. But you know, eventually, you if you talk to enough people, and they trust you enough to tell you what they really think, and then um, you can you can kind of at over time, I think. I'm always, I always believe I always believe in the idea that you know facts aren't really disputable. You know you can't have um, you can't have. I don't believe in alternative facts. I believe in facts. Yeah. And and when I when you get to a point where you've interviewed enough people, you've read enough of the literature, and you make some conclusions that well, here's the facts and here's the BS. And and I, so I, I I tend to I find myself over time the the people I I really trust. That I feel like I can I can share their their insights and and, and feel confident that, that I I can fall back on on the information they provide to um, back up arguments if someone you know, disputes them. Those are the people I, I keep going back to because I, I figured ah they they've done enough on this they have enough experience to where and, and plus they they just day in day out tell the truth. I I, I go with those folks and I, and I I stand by them. Yeah. What do you think then when you when you think back on people like that or research that you've been reading up on let's shift from smell now to sight. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. There's also a recent movement in the sight world where people are like ah camos for the birds. You don't need camo. You can hunt in whatever. Um I'm curious what you've seen when it comes to the science of deer sight. Um, and what that mm-hmm. should inform us as hunters, or how that should inform us as hunters. What 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 stands out to you about deer's vision, and why and how mm-hmm. might it be important to us as hunters to know that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a you and I probably reading the same stuff and hearing from the same people, and, and hearing at least hearing the same arguments from different folks. And the, the, the thing in the bottom line, where I always start with when it comes to the deer vision, is their ability to, to see motion. They can see motion so well. Humans see motion really well. I, I as, as I recall, from what they can figure out with, um, the, I think it's called like a um, the flicker effect or something that they really to see movement and then quick respond to it as you as you're moving yourself. Deer um, that they are have been able to test this. That deer can can see as they're moving through the woods. They can see things. And respond to it, or have a, or interpret it, whatever you want to call it, analyze it, like two and a half times faster than humans can. Wow. So that which probably explains why they can run through the woods and not poke their eye out all the time. If we ran through the woods at the speed, um, at even our fastest speed, which is nowhere near what a deer's is, we we'd probably be jamming our we we would probably lose our eyes in no time. Yeah. You, know, you think how 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 tough that is to um, negotiate stuff where you're not constantly ducking your head and and and, and seeing stuff coming. But deer, um, you know, I, 
I've killed a lot of deer in my life, and I've yet to find a deer that poked out eye. Now it's <laughs> amazing. I mean, I, I find I find scars on them at times. That then you don't know if it got from jabbing into a branch or jabbing from a buck, whatever it might be. Um, another thing that um, I remember too, Mark. Again, this is this speaks to my um, age, but I remember reading all the time as a kid growing up that deer see black and white. That's all I can see is black and white. And that was really the common belief back in the, you know, probably well into the into the seventies um, and probably the, even the early eighties was probably still uh, people thinking that deer basically see black and white. And then Carl Miller at the University of Georgia and some of his students started looking into it and realized, no, they can see some colors, but they, but the, the thing that um, Carl Miller will still talk about to this day is that where we get into trouble all the time, we can analyze. Um, what, uh, how many cones, how many rods are in the deer's eye, what, what we think they can see. But, but one thing we can't do with deer, we can't actually ask them. Um, we, we can't put like those little grids. You'll, if you've ever taken a color vision test, um, anyone entering the military takes this color vision test. And I always remember I, my color vision was, was fine. I, every little chart they flipped over, I could identify the, the, the little number, hidden number in, in these, in these, um, in these pictures, whereas guys with certain color vision problems can't see those numbers, and they yeah. so they 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 would get blackballed. You know, they they couldn't go in. That's me. And well, oh, you have that problem, huh? I've got I've got a little bit of red green color deficiency uh, or blindness. Yeah, yeah. So so like guys like you are are, are the ones they'll um kind of refer to as they'll they'll say, well, if there's one color blindness that um might line up with what a deer color blindness is it's that is that one that you have but the thing they get tricky about where they get a little more um careful about is they'll say yeah but what we don't know is what the deer brain is interpreting from what it's seeing and that's where humans we can we know damn well what humans are interpreting because we ask them you know can you see this and you say yes or no well how do you how do you prove that with a deer you can't just put a bunch of flip charts in front of it and start saying, tell us, for, tell us which one, do you see the number three in this picture? <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you can't do that with deer. So it's really always open, open to interpretation until we can find a way to test deer to pick out those little things. It, it does get tricky. But at Georgia, they have developed some tests, and they, and they, and they have shown that, um, you know, deer, for example, they think, um, see, like, the, the blue shades, uh, like 10, 10, 18 times better than, than, than humans can. Maybe more than that. I think I can't realize all the details in that, but it's, they, they can see blues really good. They can see um, into the UV spectrum, but they can't see into the infrared spectrum. And where we and so they have all these different um, um, things that they they think they they know based on uh, the structure of the eye. Because one of the cool things about um, when they break down the the, um, the things in the deer's eye, the thing that you know I always kind of rely on is that. Nature wouldn't provide that particular um, filter or that particular number of rods and cones unless the deer is able to use them. You know, just you know, nature is so efficient that way. So chances are, if it doesn't have like we have this yellow filter in our eye that helps us um, break down detail. We can we can see detail really clear. You know, when you talk about twenty twenty vision, that means you know good solid vision that um, you know almost everyone who sees twenty twenty. That basically indicates this is what you should see at 20, 20 yards or twenty feet. Twenty feet, I think it is. 
Whereas deer, they figure their acuity, their ability to see that fine detail is only about a third of what ours is. So they, but they figure, well, you know, they, they really don't need that um, to, to see the fine detail that humans require. So they don't, they don't need, need that. So they don't have that yellow filter. And plus that yellow filter, apparently it, it filters out like the ultraviolet lights, which for our um, lifespan, we live a long time. That's important to have. If we didn't have, we'd probably go blind at some point. Where a deer, they don't live that long, so they don't have that yellow filter. So there's all these cool things that they, they, they're able to look at, but still the thing they can't do, like I said earlier, is they can't, they can't flash pictures in front of a deer's um, eyes and then, tell it what, and then have them tell us what they see. So, so the big takeaways on vision or the things that we think we kind of know are they've got a, a better than average ability to see blues, so don't go out there wearing mm-hmm. a blue ball cap or blue jeans or something like right. that. Right. Um, they don't necessarily have the level of attention to, or ability to see detail, but movement is is so key for them. So again, like my grandpa told me when I was a little kid, stop moving, Mark, stop moving. <laughs> That's the case yeah, still. Yeah. Keep it slow, yeah. right? And, you know, and another, another fascinating thing about um, why, like, why we can get away with so much more up in a up in a tree stand than you can in the ground is you know the way their eyes designed. Our, our, we have a round pupil, so we can see above and below us pretty good, you know, without really moving our eyes around a whole lot. We can see that good up and down vertical vision. Where a deer lives lives full time on the ground, it's been preyed on by four legged predators all through all through its, its, its eons. So it doesn't really need that um, ability to see upward as much as as um, like some animals might, but the deer does not see above quite as well as we can. And so you get, you can get away with stuff. I mean, yeah, they, they get better above. Once they know they're being hunted from above, they'll, they'll um, cock their head up there and look, look that way more often than a deer that's not tuned into that. And that's why you see areas where they may hunt a lot when they've been, when they've been hunted, hunted a lot by, um, from tree stands. Yeah, they, they definitely do look up more, but as far as just walking through the woods, um, unless they actually make a conscious effort to look up, you know, they don't see that, that stuff up above them as well as we can. So th- those kind of things they, they're able to, you know, pinpoint based on just the, the, the structure of the deer's eye and, um, you know, you know, try, try to gauge, well, what, what's it good at? What's it not good at? And what colors does it see better? And another one that, that comes into play is the, the, the fact that, um, you know, the, their eye is really well built for the time time of day they're most active you know and that's right right at the edge of day you know dawn and dusk you know their eye picks up on um, these these um i think it's in the blue spectrum again those blue spectrum lights that that, that gets reflected like underneath um the tail for example gives off a a, a, you know, a light that's in the, in the blue spectrum so when they run through the woods and, and they the mother's got its tail up and they're following fawns following it they can pick that um white tail up really well and light that's being reflected off of it, and so those kind of things are. I, I love reading about that stuff, and then I, then I, I end up always, you know, thinking, well, you know, what can we do to beat that? And I think, well, <laughs> you always come back down to the, the the thing you just mentioned. Sit still, Mark. Yep. It, it's still going to be the the number one thing. Yeah, I think I, I think I need one of those like wrist bracelets or something, or put a little piece of paper on my bow riser. The, or you know, the top of my visor, my hat that just says "Sit still, Mark." That would be a good, just yeah. a reminder all day, every day when I'm out hunting. Because <laughs> it, it, it is, it, it's just a basic thing you're taught from the time you first hunt. But damn, it's hard to do it. You know, yeah. It's hard to sit there and have that discipline and, and not. 
And another one that kills me all the time is um, they always tell you, don't snap your head around when you hear a, hear a mm. sudden noise. Yeah. I think, well, yeah, I've never been able to stop myself myself from snapping my head around. Easier said us, than done. I mean, that's why I'm not, yeah, it's just an, it's kind of an instinct. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that then, right, you hear this snap. We sense that it's over our right shoulder. We spin our head to see it. Um, we had some directional acuity with our hearing. We can kind of tell where sounds come from. Uh, moving mm-hmm. now to how deer hear, they have that even more, to an even higher degree than we do. And you brought this up a little bit earlier. Um, but that mm-hmm. seems to be like the superpower when it comes to deer hearing. Maybe not necessarily they can hear 10 million times farther than us, but they certainly can detect the source of sound better than us, right? Yeah. 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 They have that ability to, when they can turn those ears toward the, the sound of a source, or if their ears are pointed that, that direction when they hear it, they, they can lock on real quickly. And, and almost every deer hunter I know can tell a story about doing something like rat, you know, when they're rattling, rattling antlers, or um, doing something that, that um, scares it, where, where a deer gets curious. Those deer uh, will show up you know, right on the spot almost of, of where, where you rattle from, or else they'll show up. I think, I think you brought this point up. If they don't show up there, they'll show up downwind of that spot yeah. almost precisely, like almost precisely downwind of it, where they know that's where that sound came from. Let me figure out how, you know, what it was before I commit myself here. And so that, that ability to, it's basically try, you know, the idea of triangulating. And when you have those big ears and you have them, you know, set apart, you know, what is it, about six, you know, five inches apart up on top of their head, that gives it just enough, that three-dimensional ability to, to, to triangulate that really it, it's, it's powerful. We're, we're um, you know, you think, well, how, we, do, we do pretty well ourselves with, with fixed ears. So think what a deer can do with, with um, these, these, you know, like almost like radar dishes atop their head. Yeah. Uh, the thing for me when it comes to that, that I always try to remind myself and I would remind other people too, is like when you are actively choosing to make noise. So if you are grunting or rattling, trying to attract deer to your, to within shooting range, you better sure as hell believe that it could work because if you rattle and then after 10 seconds, you don't see anything uh, and then you lose your focus. Great point. You're going to get surprised yeah. a couple times with a deer showing up 10 yards away looking at you moving around your tree stand. So you better assume that, hey, they can, they're locked. After you make that noise, you better just make the assumption, okay, there's a buck. He's locked on. He's going to be within 10 yards of me. I better be prepared for that in case it happens. Because if you get lax at that moment, I've seen it too mm-hmm. many times, you're going to pay. Definitely. You know, that's, I think, where um, all these accumulative things of hunting and fishing come into play. You know, that, that confidence that it won't happen all the time. It might only happen a couple times a fall, but you better be ready when it happens. Yeah. And, I, and I think anyone who's ever gone fishing, and whether it's, you know, watching corks or, or trolling, whatever, if you don't have confidence that at some point that rod holder is going to, there's going to be a rod bucking in the back end of the boat with a fish on the other end. You know, you lose your focus, you, you, your mind wanders, and, and in those cases, um, that, that, with trolling, you can, get, you can get, get away with that. But when you're um, like jigging for walleyes and you get lax, you get complacent, and you lose your confidence, you, you're probably going to miss the fish. And so I think all these kind of things start adding up for people who hunt and fish a lot. They, they start realizing that this is a matter of, you know, like we were talking earlier, that when, when we ter- talk in terms of 1%, 2% success rates, um, those aren't those aren't unrealistic um, expectations, really. But 
But if you're not ready and, and that 2% happens, you're going to miss your chance. And that happens all the time. So, you know, one of my, one, it, one of my favorite um, things I worked on years ago was an article for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine where a woman named um, Karen Dasher, I think it was her maiden name, she did a, some great research on, on, on scrape visitation by bucks. And she found that only about you know, 2% or 3% of, um, of visitations to an active scrape were happening during, um, during daylight. It might, it might have been 5%, but it was, an, it was a pretty low percentage of, of scrape visitations was, was occurring in, in shooting light. And so, you know, some people would read that and go, well, what's the point of sitting there if only 2% of your time sitting on that stand is a chance of a buck coming by? And think, well, if that's, you know, the odds you're dealt with, then it kind of speaks to the idea that you better be out there every chance you get sitting on that spot. Because you, you might, if you're not there as often as you, as you can, can be out there, you'll never, you'll certainly, the odds then really go up to you know, worse than 2%. Yeah, there's there's certainly a lot to trying to just that confidence thing, just being out there yeah. and knowing that if you're if you're doing something that you have faith in, you're going to do it a lot better. It, this comes like a mm-hmm. self fulfilling prophecy, and that applies to to so yeah. many things when it comes to deer. Yeah. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. On the hearing thing, I remember reading something about... uh, you had mentioned that deer have the ability to, they have some kind of neurofiltering ability with yeah, their hearing. Do yeah. you recall that? And what can you yep. describe that? Yeah. Yeah. Neurofiltering is basically the ability to, um, the deer, you know, because they live in their environment, you know, 24 7, 365 a year, that they're out there. They, they hear sounds all day long that they can, um, eventually they figure out which ones. To, to filter out which one's not to filter out and the, the best way i could i came up with to describe that ability 
um, in human terms is the idea that most of us have been in a loud environment, like at a cocktail party, and we're and we're able to um, focus on th- the person in front of us and what they're talking to us about, and listening only to their voice and tuning out all the rest of the background noise. And but then somehow in that process, though, we're listening. But if we hear our name mentioned, like a couple couple people away, or 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 a certain phrase or certain words that are of high interest to us. Um, we, we somehow are able to, to pick out those noises, those sounds, and give them meaning and look that way. And deer, you think, well, they do the same thing out in the woods. You know, they, they hear a squirrel bouncing through the woods or a, or a possum waddling through the woods or down south, you get those um, armadillos. And eventually, you know, you think humans, how many times, no matter how many times we've been hunting, we get pretty good at picking out all those sounds and differentiating them, but we still get, get tricked all the time or we, or we don't want to be tricked. So we look anyway. And so you, know, you can put a deer, they just, if they didn't have that ability, they would, they would not last one. They, they would be basically nervous wrecks because one of the, one of the truisms of deer that I always keep in mind, I, I make this comment all the time um, is that deer are either scared or they're dead. <laughs> if they're not in that potential, if they're not always in that, frame of mind where um, they have to they have to pay attention. They're not always paying attention. They can't afford to let their guard down like we do and get, get complacent. But yet, there's many times you see them just totally disregard certain noises. I doubt it's because they're complacent. I think it's just because they know this is not, a, they, they're so good at, they identify that sound as non-threatening, and they just keep going about their, their business. And that's where, um, I think, in this article we talked about you know, you, you and I got talking about, well, what's the best way to approach a stand when, it, when it's, when it's um, a dry woods? And that's when you mentioned that the idea, well, sometimes it, you're thinking that might be probably smart just to run to your stand or trot to your stand, a cadence that they just, they just don't usually associate with people. Right. If you're sneaking in, you know, they, they probably a sound that they have learned. There's nothing, there's nothing safe about a sneaky human. And so they, they, they will pick that out, pick that sound out every time. Yeah. I, I've definitely tried to change up my cadences sometimes when, when you know, they're going to hear something, it's better not to sound like this steady, sneaky human. That's, that's yeah. definitely something that I think. Now, another thing I feel like when, when we're talking about this ability to neural filter, do you're able to pick the sounds that matter, um, of course, there's going to be human like sounds are so unnatural, like metal on metal, that kind of thing. I'm sure is something mm-hmm. they pick up on right away. But what about this one? Yeah, um, this is something that I've wondered about and seen, and that is other animals making warning noises. So let's say you are sitting in your tree and you happen to move, and a squirrel sees you and just starts going off, starts chattering, chattering, chattering. It's like that warning. Or a bird, you're walking through, and a crow starts crowing at you, crowing at you. Do you think there's any truth or validity to the fact or the idea, the theory that certain animals will make warnings that deer can pick up on and they interpret it as danger in some kind of way? That that's where I where I um I get nervous about making any hard and fast comment on something like that because I I have no way of knowing for for certain. Um but I, I guess personally I know it irritates the, the crap out of me and worries me w- when an animal starts doing that. When yeah. a squirrel starts chattering, a chipmunk starts cheeping, those kind of sounds. Are, um, that worries me. I think, God, you know, I, 
how can an, another animal in the woods not take notice of that and and, and, and figure if, if, it's, if it's on a route that might take it somewhere close to me, now it's probably having second thoughts because it might not know, they, they might not have their own little language. But the thing I, I, I say that just because logically I can't prove it. But, but, but then again, I, I always remember one of my little memories from childhood was my grandmother listening to a blue jay call one morning. And it's a certain, certain call that blue jays make. And she goes, uh, I guess it'll be raining later today. And I said, I said like, what? She's, she says that that's down there. And this blue jay was, was made it again. She says, that's that call right there indicates that later today it's going to rain. And to this day, when I hear that particular blue jay call, God, she's, it's usually been right. Wow. And, but, but, but for me, the thing is, Mark, I couldn't begin to tell you what to, to right now uh, imitate that sound to, to the, to a point where you could understand it mm-hmm. and where I could actually pass that knowledge along. So I think that there is this knowledge that we, we can pass along through direct contact like that, that will always stick with us. But how do you communicate that to a, a fellow hunter in an article? And, and then, so that's where I don't discount the idea that that deer that lives in that environment 24-7 might be able to hear a little nuanced call that we don't get the nuance, but the deer does. And so I, that's where I can't discount it because I, 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 can't, I can't say I've ever seen it myself. I doubt there's any scientists that can ever say they've, they've, um, they've pinpointed it. But I've, I've talked to some guys that claim without a doubt that um, certain crow calls and certain squirrel calls alert deer and, and put them on, on edge. And I think I, I quoted this um, guy in my recent meat eater article on hearing where he claimed the only time he, he was watching a buck one time in a bed. And the only time that buck picked up his head and focused on anything was when he, when I heard a, a crow calling in the distance and I locked onto that sound and looked that direction for the whole time the crow was, was, was uh, squawking. So that may, Assuming he's interpreting it right, well, chances are it was something out there that concerned that deer. If it, if it concerned, concerned that crow, well, it concerned that deer. So I don't know. It, it's it's fun to talk about, and I guess I don't discount it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I I certainly use those sounds to alert myself to possibility of deer. So when sure. I'm sitting in a oh. tree stand, and you hear that squirrel all of a sudden go off 40, 50 yards away in the brush, right away I Definitely. key in on that spot. Because so Definitely. many times I've heard this a squirrel yep. sound off the warning. Right. And if you watch it long enough, oh, there's the deer. Um, yeah. So- yeah. Yeah. And that, and then that, that got, you know, I should have, I should have mentioned that, but I remember first, the first time I ever got a shot with my bow and arrow, um, I was 16 years old. I was, you know, and back in this is like 1971 or 72. I could I think, it was, I think it was 71. I was up in this. In back in those days, we didn't have portable tree stands. You know, so typically we'd just find a big oak tree with a with a good um, horizontal branch and stand on it. And I remember um, watching this nice eight point buck walk down this trail to me. And my first indication that that deer was anywhere around was a chipmunk started, started cheeping mm-hmm. off in that direction. I, and, I, and I looked up that way, and I saw a little weird movement that I knew wasn't a squirrel or a chipmunk. And I, and I watched a couple more times, and I finally realized it was a deer's nose. Um, and, it was, and it was eating, you know, it was browsing on, on, on some branches or some brush as it came through. And then, but, but I always remember that, that that was um, my first warning, my first indication that, that I had company was that, that chipmunk. I think it's probably something that people ignore. But 
if you, if, I mean, I think a lot of people, if you spend any amount of time in the woods at all, you'll eventually kind of get to know what an angry chipmunk or angry, angry squirrel or yeah, what yeah. that sound is. Right. And if you hear that sound, gosh, it pays to take a few minutes and scour that area with your eyes because so mm-hmm. many times, they, like, they're not doing that for no reason. There's some kind of reason right. why they're making right. that racket, and often it can be an approaching yeah. animal. Um, yeah, and that, that's, you're right. I can't imagine that, that crow is out there just squawking for its own entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> so, something, something triggered it, you know. Well, you know, it's, it goes back to, and this informs so much of my deer hunting worldview and strategy now. It comes back to something that Craig Doherty once told me. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I was sitting in a box blind with him up on his New York farm, and we didn't see any deer that. It was an evening sit. It was over a food plot. There should have been dozens of deer, and we didn't see anything at all. And I made a comment like, well, you know, it's deer. You just never know what they're going to do. Um, and I just kind of passed it off as you'll never know. And Craig said, no, mm-hmm. that's the wrong approach. He said, you always need to ask why. There's always a reason why. And the key to getting mm-hmm. better at this thing is whenever you observe something or whenever something goes right or something goes wrong um, or something happens unexpectedly, don't just take it for, oh, that thing happened and move on. Mm-hmm. Observe whatever yeah. happened and then ask why and try to figure that yeah. out. And there's so often yeah. in the woods – when you see a buck walk from point A to point B, I always try to think to myself afterwards, why did he move from point A to point B? Why did he go in that direction? Why was he acting in that way? And I just, as much as I possibly can, I'm trying to ask that throughout my hunting season, throughout a hunt. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times that has helped me learn lessons. Constantly, there's there's a reason why they do everything. If we can pick even like five, if we can get the answer right 5% of the time, that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I really respect that, that approach because I've always figured that's one of the reasons that I, I'll never consider myself um, a, a great deer hunter. I'll never, I'll never um, try, to, try to tell people that, oh, listen to me, I, you know, I, I know all there is, or, or I'm really the expert in this area. But that, no, I've met too many of these people. I've met too many guys <laughs> who really are that good. And, and the thing I think they, they all have in common is that curiosity, that, that, that ability to, to um, they might, they might interpret it wrong, whatever it might be, but the fact that they're questioning it all the time and trying to put those pieces together all the time, that's what makes them so good at it. And, you know, the things that I find interesting, it, it might, might not interest them in the least because it doesn't really fit into their, the puzzle they're trying to put together. Whereas, you know, like I, I can get myself distracted on, on any number of things out in the woods. Mm-hmm. And I always think that's probably why I'll never be that great deer hunter. I, I tend to, I, my mind tends to wander. I tend to look at our stuff and start being interested in, in a certain bird where I find a feather and go, okay, and I'll start trying to figure out what, what bird that feather came right. from instead of paying attention to sounds around me, you know? Yeah. So I think these are all the things that, um, that separate the women from the girls when it comes to uh, hunters, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that there's, 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 super, there's guys out there. I just, um, I've learned over time that you, you don't get jealous of their, their success. You respect their success because chances are that if they do it, if they don't just stumble on I me, mean, everyone can stumble onto a, a, a good buck every now and then, or, um, a good, nice long string of success where they never come home empty handed year to year. But people who are good at this, who it really matters to them, they're out there all the time. They're, 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 they got their trail cameras going all the time. They're, they're looking at the stuff in the trail camera. They're interpreting what they're seeing in there. It's always something that's, um, that's tugging at them and inspiring them and sparking something where 
And then there's the rest of us who want to attribute it all to luck and just good timing and fortunate timing. And I think, nah, just over time, the, the good deer hunters um, find a way to separate themselves from the rest of us. Yeah. What I appreciate about you is the, uh, A, your, your humility, uh, but B, the fact that uh, you approach, it seems like not only your writing, but also your hunting with a journalist sensibility and that you're looking at things objectively, you're going to strong, trustworthy sources and, uh, and, and, and not falling for alternative facts, but being able to sort the facts from the BS. Um, and I think that's a strong approach to writing and a very strong approach to deer hunting. Um, and you certainly are doing that. So, so answer me this though. You have yeah. been in the deer hunting world now for 30 or more years. You were editing for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. You were now freelance writing for all these different outlets over the years. What is, maybe right now, I'm sure you, over the years you've seen a whole lot of new ideas coming and going, different trends rising and falling, different fads getting really popular and then dissipating. Um, can you name one of these ideas that you feel like is really legit? If there's one of these fads or, or new strategies or products or something that you say, you know what, I've seen that backed up enough or enough sources have told me or my own experiences have told me this one is really legit. So one idea or, or a little gimmick that actually is real. And then can you name one that is bogus? Is there something out there? Is there some fallacy, some myth that you just can't, you just, you're so sick and tired of people spouting this BS and you need to correct it right now? Um, I guess the one that I, one that I just can't get behind, and I just, um, as Steve Rinella would say, if if God came down and put a gun to your head, where would you stand on this one? Yeah. And that that's the uh, um, the moon phase stuff. Mm, I just, yeah, I I can't I can't get into it. I just I've tried many times over the years through surveys, through um, Q and A's, through interviews, and reading as much research as there is on it, and I, I just always come back to the idea that um, Al Hofacker, again, the deer and deer hunting founder. Um, when they first looked into this stuff back for their readership surveys back in the 80s, Al's conclusion after going through all the different um, 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 surveys that, that he reviewed, it's all a bunch of hooey. That was Al's <laughs> conclusion, all a bunch of hooey. And then um, when Grant Woods, Grant Woods, I thought, was just su- super cool to interview on this article I did from Meat Eater about the lunar phases where he thought he had it nailed down he thought he had it nailed down back in 1993, 1994. And, and we actually worked together on a project back then for deer and deer hunting where he had this chart and then we were selling it through the magazine. And cause he had like a 72% accuracy on it. And Grant was really proud of it. He was doing all this. He's actually giving seminars on it and giving presentations to the scientific community on it. And, and he had it, he had, what looked to be really solid information that he had figured out um, how to, how to link deer activity to the, the diff, to the moon's, um, uh, uh, different things about how far above the equator it was on certain days and when it rose, when it sat, and all these kind of things. And then he said, but then it all fell apart with the GPS collars. He said, once they put GPS collars on deer and we knew where they were 24 hours a day and if they're moving, if they're sitting still, he said, my, my deer activity indexes fell apart. Hmm. And, and I always took that, took that to heart that I'm, um, well, if Grant Woods could go from from this this point where he thought he was, you know, and he's a pretty smart, um, skeptical guy, to go from um, where he thought he had something figured out to where he's now just you know doesn't 
doesn't even consider it. He just goes hunting. Uh, I figure, well, I'm, I'm probably more in that camp, you know, where it just seems like it's just too hard to, to quantify. But then I get back to um, where I think, on their hand, I don't discount the idea that if it gives a guy confidence that this that he's got to figure it out and that keeps him on stand, it puts him out in the woods when other guys might might stay home. Yeah. I don't know. I, I have a hard time discounting that belief. And yeah. I mean, he, I you know, I don't think the the belief is making the deer move at a certain time, but I do believe it's, it's helping the guy stay out there. And so that that's where I don't totally just you know uh, get all judgmental about it. Some, some guy swears about it. I'm not going to argue with him. I just figure, well, you know, the thing is that Mark again, I'd say, well. On their hand, I look at that and I'd look at what's on his wall and what's what he's accomplished as a hunter. And I think, well, he's doing something right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just figure, well, whatever it might be, that might not be the that might might not be it. But um, he's doing something right. Yeah. As far as um things, I I find um where it's valid, where it has uh, credentials. Um, I I um, I guess the 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 two things that I, that I. I I think I still think scrape hunting is always worth a shot. If you've got some, some good scrapes that indicate a buck's moving through a certain area on a regular basis, I don't know about how well they, how often they come by and check the scrape, or off, how often they happen to walk on the same trail or, or near the same trail that where they rubbed, you know, like um, you know, a nice long rub line along some ridge. But there are certain things that um, I think you can piece together from that, from from deer sign obvious deer sign that still it's hard to overlook and discount and that's that's where um like greg miller i think in one of his books on i think it was me rub line secrets one of those i think he estimates something like only about five percent or six percent of his um attempts at, at killing killing bucks in a rub line have ever um worked out there's just very few times it works out but he said again it's worked out enough times though to where he keeps trying to piece them together and, and, and hunt over them and so you know that that that's um to me worth worth hanging on to and we're we're um but then you have to at some point I remember Greg years ago kind of giving up on trying it up north in, in Wisconsin because baiting became so popular and once you have deer um, responding to to out, outside stimulus and in this case artificial uh, food sources well it throws off all those natural patterns that um he was used to uh, capitalizing on. Interesting. I think, um, I, I feel like a lot of what you said rings true with me as well. Um, when it comes to things like scrapes and rubs and, and, and yeah, it, it, none of these things are surefire guaranteed type setups, but it is something, it is a piece of the puzzle and it's certainly better to be working with a piece of the puzzle versus a blank slate. Um, yeah. And I think it, it can help with that confidence too. And, and you, you make up, mm-hmm. an, you make an interesting point that the placebo effect, just believing something might help you actually can help you because you're confident and if you're confident you're focused and if you're focused you're on point and you mm-hmm. take advantage of things when they when those opportunities arise and um you can't discount that so that is a really yeah. a really good point um and it's interesting to see how that might play out in the woods yeah thank you i i think that this is a good place for us to wrap it up pat because uh we, we okay. cover some really helpful kind of, I think, foundational pieces of knowledge for new hunters and then even for experienced hunters. I think it's good to go back and look at the building blocks and remember, what do deer do? How do they see the world? How do they perceive the world? What does that mean for us as hunters? Um, 
that just can't be hammered into our heads enough, I think. So I appreciate you taking the time to share um, the things you've learned over the years as you've hunted and, and learned through your own experiences and then, you know, learned from some of the people out there, your, your ability to find and interpret things from sources out there and sharing that with the rest of the world, I think is very helpful. And I will say to, to the folks listening, start paying attention to the byline. And when you see Pat Durkin on the byline of an article, <laughs> you can feel confident. This isn't a placebo effect. You can feel confident that you're about to read a quality piece of work. Um, so Pat, uh, thank you for doing this. And, and I hope a lot of people will, will read what you're doing. And I know that I've enjoyed everything on the mediator recently. And I'm really glad that you're helping us out there. Great. Thanks, Mark. I'm, I'm flattered. Yeah, I hope you have a, a great hunting season this year too. Yeah. When, when's your first hunt? I leave in like two and a half weeks for uh early September hunt in North Dakota. Very cool. Good yeah. luck out there. Thank you. All right, Pat, we're going to wrap it up. And that will be a wrap for today's episode. Hope you enjoyed this one. I will give you a couple quick suggestions though before you go. Number one, if you want to follow along with the hunts that I've got coming up, I'm leaving in just a matter of weeks for my first hunt, and then it will just be chaos from there on out. If you want to follow along with everything I'm up to, make sure you are following wired to hunt on Instagram. And finally, if you've been enjoying this show, I haven't asked for this in a while, but I'll throw it out there. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would be incredible if you could leave a rating or review over on iTunes. That would mean the world, and it really helps us out. So that way thank you for listening thanks for being a part of this community and until next time stay wired to hunt i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.